Welcome to the ETOP Podcast with your host, Richard Walsh. I'm a 30-year business-owning veteran, creator of the ETOP Academy, and best-selling author of Escape the Owner Prison, the contract's new way to scale, regain control, and fast-track growth while loving life. My mission to help 10,000 business owners create the freedom in their lives to do what they want, when they want, and still be massively successful. Now, let's hit our topic for the day. Hey, here we are on the ETOP Podcast. Today's guest, Jeff Morrill. He is a serial entrepreneur. That's what I like to call people who do more than one because it just makes sense. One of his bigger bigger achievements you've probably heard of is Planet Subaru as one. Uh, his business currently are doing over $100 million in annual revenue right now, and that's cool. But there's even more he's doing, which I love too. He's the author of ProfitWise, and that's how to make more profit doing the right thing. So I, I'm really excited to talk to Jeff about this because it's going to be things about integrity, great business principles and doing things the way they should be done, not the wrong way, right? All about doing the right way. We've had a lot of those discussions recently on how important that is in the business world and how it separates you actually from the competition and makes you a leader. So I'm going to let Jeff fill, fill us in on everything else as I always do. So with no further ado, Jeff, come on board. How are you doing today? Very good. Thank you. I'm glad to help you escape the owner's prison this afternoon. Love it. I know you will. I know you will. You've got some great uh, some great tips and tricks here we're going to talk about for sure. So uh, for now, get us up to speed. How'd you get into all this, right? Kind of give us the quick, you know, the quick synopsis of the beginning, the middle, kind of where you're at today, where you're looking at going. I'd love to hear all this. Well, I'll start at the end and then I'll, I'll work my way back briefly. I don't want to linger too long on the bio because I think that's the part that's least useful to your listeners and, and has the fewest number of, of practices that they can begin using as soon as today to help improve their businesses. But I, I'm talking to you today from Charlottesville, Virginia. And I grew up in Virginia, but my wife and I moved up uh, 1998 to buy a bankrupt Subaru dealership with my brother and co-founder. And that dealership's in Boston, Massachusetts, right outside. So we were there for 20 years. And during that time, we built that business. And then it's um, a lot easier to build or buy and develop other businesses once you already have one because you have so much access to, to connections and capital and that kind of thing. So the subsequent businesses took a lot less out of me. We have uh, cellular tower infrastructure, we have insurance, real estate, those kinds of businesses in addition to the retail automotive dealerships that we run. So the reason um, I ended up in the car business, I graduated from college from Virginia Tech in 1994 and I couldn't find a job in the field that I thought I wanted to do, which was uh, politi politics or running political campaigns. But one of the politicians I'd volunteered for in college had a Volvo dealership, and he offered me the one job that, um, that I was offered. And I took it, writing service in a service department, and I never left the business. So I, I really enjoyed it. And and I guess the the observation about that is just how important it is that you you do things in your life that you like, because if, if you like them, you're going to be, you're going to have the energy to be good at them and pursue them over the long term. And fortunately, I was, I loved cars. I've always loved cars and, and I like business because uh, we had grown up under pretty modest circumstances. And so I was interested in making some money so I didn't have to live the rest of my life in some scarcity mode. Oh, I like that. Yeah. It's uh 
I love business. I can't help it either. You know, successes, failures, everything all together. It's an exciting life. Um, and it's a, to me, as I say in my book, it's the greatest economic engine on the planet, right? A business. You can create as much or as little as you want, and you can add as much fuel to that engine as you want. It can take you pretty much anywhere, you know, by, by having a business, multiple business, whatever it is. So I, I really have a great appreciation for what you're, what you're saying there. So from there, from there, Jeff, okay, you've got the dealerships, you've got the insurance agencies, you got all the other stuff. This is great. Okay. So what made you want to write this book? Let's talk about profit wise. I want to hear about what actually made you want to write this book. Was there a circumstance? Did something happen in the business? Is it something you just observed? But what actually made you want to write about this book? And of course, fill us into kind of the some of the details of the book itself and what it's all about. Sure. So let's let's um, talk. Go back maybe ten years to me under the fluorescent lights of a dealership showroom, dreaming about the day that that I would have the time and the uh, the ability to to enjoy my passions, which include mountain biking. And I dreamed of, of doing that. It's one of the reasons why after about 20 years of building the business, my wife decided, my wife and I decided to move back to Virginia and leave partners in charge of, of running the day-to-day aspects of the business. And I was out mountain bike riding here all alone on an Albemarle County fire road all by myself on a, on a, very chilly day and the conditions were pretty icy. I probably shouldn't have, have gone out, but, but I did. And I was shocked after I wrecked that I couldn't move. And I'd always assumed that if I had uh, had a wreck and that's the reason I was willing to ride by myself and take that risk, that if I broke an arm or a leg, I could hop out or find some way out. But, but I broke my femur in five places in the accident, which I didn't know at the time. I, I found that later after I got I could tell looking down on it that, that, uh, it was, it was not a, uh, it's not the way your leg legs supposed to look. And, and had things just been a little different that day, it turns out that my cell phone did, did communicate with the 911 dispatcher and the EMTs were able to find me in enough time. So, so I survived it, but, but it could have been my last day. And, and that night in the hospital, I was reflecting on my life, which, which you do, I, I recommend, a. I mean, I, I don't want to sound flip, but I almost recommend a near-death experience to everybody in middle age because it gives you an opportunity to think about the choices that you made and the choices that are left to be made in, in the ones that you don't want to screw up with a little with a little less time that you have available in the second half of your life. And I realized that that if I had made any mistakes, it was probably that I had not shared the abundance that had been shared with me. And what I mean by that is so many people had invested themselves in, in preparing me to do well in society. You think about the teachers that, that forwent higher paying jobs to, to choose an education career to help me acquire skills. And I think about the prior generations in my family that made a lot of sacrifices so that, that I could go to college and, and uh, get the, the education I needed to, to flourish. And and I had, I think I had honored those people by doing a good job, but I, I hadn't taken full advantage of the opportunity to give back. And, and so I said, all right, well, what can I do right now from a couch where I'm incapacitated for, for months? And, and so all these ideas about building businesses I had been working through over a long time, but I'd never had the occasion to sit down and write them because life's too busy, but, but now I did. And so 
a lot of those lessons are in the the book profit wise and and i tried to share the the big theory of what i think has made us so successful as a company and that is that that you can serve the world and earn a living at the same time that the it's a false choice that you have to take care of either the stockholders or other stakeholders they actually go very well together and I'll give you just one example before you before I give you the floor back to to help direct the, the rest of the conversation. And that is um, in 2011 at the Subaru dealership, we installed a huge solar panel array on the roof, and the technology was was not especially well developed then, so it was very expensive. And and a lot of people thought we were crazy because they looked at it, you know, like my peers and uh, fellow business people couldn't see how we would generate a return on that investment. And, and to some extent, I, I was less interested in the return because I just thought it was the right thing to do for a business that sold vehicles that produced a lot of carbon, that we should be working on mitigating the impacts of the, the negative externalities flowing out of our business. But beyond that, I saw an opportunity too. And I thought if we could share this story about what we had done and why we had done it and and used as an opportunity to communicate our values as a company to prospective customers, that, that customers who shared our values would appreciate that and would want to be a part of, of what we had built in, in that business. And, and we're right. And, and we see even today. So it's now 10 years later, and we're still talking about it, promoting it on our website and, and in other ways we can, we can talk about this commitment we made, uh, one of many, to reducing our environmental footprint. And people will drive by other dealerships to do business with us. And there are some customers who don't care, you know, if they can save 50 bucks or hundred bucks on the price of a car, they'll go elsewhere. But there are a lot of people that do. And those are the kind of customers we want to serve. And those are the customers that, that appreciate what we're doing. And we really appreciate them for, for uh, sharing our values as a company. Yeah, I think that's actually, was pretty smart. And, you know, just from a, knowing the, uh, the, the Subaru client, okay, knowing your avatar, I think is, you know, I mean, it's kind of genius in line. It's in line with the mindset of those who are Subaru owners, you know, so I wouldn't have, I would have been behind you, you know, because I, I understand, I understand the Subaru client, right? And I know, and I'm glad it worked out for you, but it really is. I think, it, like you said, you, and again, not, not in a manipulative way, Jeff, but you know, this is what you have to do, right? You have to, you got to walk the walk, right? Or walk the talk, as they say, right? So you kind of do it. You're, you're putting that stuff out there. Yes, it wasn't the most economical of the time, but you're an early adopter, if you will. You're putting that stuff up there. You're showing a concern for the environment and all that. And your clients definitely would would kind of magnetize to that and have that appreciation. So I think it's, you know, again, easy to say now, right? It's 2021, not 2011. But I think at the time, as we look at our businesses, we're all about our ideal clients, right? And you need to know them almost better than they do. We talk about that often. And that's something I think you did, whether you did it absolutely intentionally or just innately, you kind of knew and it worked, but it worked out pretty well. So I think that's a pretty good move. Yeah, I mean, I think what it is, it is very well suited to our demographic. And I know you talk about finding those 10,000 business owners that that you really want to uh, serve. You're not trying to to be everything to everybody. And we're doing the same thing. I mean, we know that, that our values don't appeal to everybody and, and we accept that, but, but we have differentiated ourselves in the marketplace 
and drawn a contrast with our competitors. And, and we know that there are enough people that will appreciate that to keep us in business. I mean, it was a, we, we couldn't be sure when we opened all those years ago with these same ideas, but we were able to test them. And I can tell you, it, it, at least in our case, the principles work. And so I share the, the sort of the, the grand theory of what we've done what we've learned about this in, in the book, but I also talk very specifically about things, specific things that people can do in their businesses to make sure they're doing the same kind of, same kind of thing. So on that, on that topic right there about doing the right thing or understanding your clientele, right? Cause again, they're going back in, in my Academy, we spent a huge amount of time, very, very detailed understanding our ideal client. Right. And I think too many people, they, they always, most, most businesses are always throwing too broad of a net, right? They're, they're trying to do anything for anybody to make a buck, right? They're trying to be all things to all people. And I think it's kind of a death nail for most businesses. I mean, you're not Walmart. Okay. So, you know, you got to think about, you know, your exact clientele. And once you understand that, not only can you direct targeting, you know, advertising and everything else with that, but let's talk about what you're talking about, about doing the right thing, right? It gives you an opportunity to do the right thing, but it actually can make it a little bit easier for you to do the, do the right thing, right? And explain to us how that, that turns into profit or additional profit. Kind of explain how that works. Well, for us, I, I mean, I'd love to tell you we were such savvy business people that we had worked all this out in advance, but I, I think my brother and I understood that we wanted this economic engine of the business that you alluded to earlier to accomplish our values as people too. We needed it to, to be profitable and produce a living for us. And, you know, profit is so important to a business because it, it goes away without it. But there are, are ways that you can combine your pursuit of revenue and profits with your private or personal or value aspirations to improve your corner of the world too. I'll give you an example of that. Like one of the things that's very important to me, it was important to our family. It's, it's important to me and my wife. And I think globally, it's important to society to include people who have been traditionally excluded from opportunities in certain industries to bring those people in. And for example, 1% of technicians, automotive technicians nationwide are women, only 1%, even though they make slightly more than 50% of the population. And we, we, just, we just thought that we were missing out on a lot of talent with our all-male shop. And so we started investigating, well, how can we how can we attract more women to this profession? Not only because it will help the community by giving young people, young women, you know, high paying jobs with a great career path and will bring additional revenue into their families and into their communities. Not only because of that, but because we need good technicians and we're missing out on half the possible uh, people out there who could be technicians. So one of the ways, one of the things we realized is there, if there are so few technicians out there, that means we're not going to be able to fi uh, find them. You know, our, our woman service manager, Krista, she, she calls female technicians unicorns because you hear about them, but you never see them. And, and we certainly have never successfully hired an experienced 
woman technician. I don't know if we've even had one ever apply because they're so rare. So what we did is we said, all right, well, what do we have to do to, to create them? And, and there are a couple of pieces to that. One, we had to have a, an apprentice structure in place, which we were able to do without any, any um, great investment. You know, we designated a person who would be a good trainer and gave that person the time and the incentive to, to help people who came aboard to develop those skills. And, and I think that um, the specific recruiting approach we took, which was very effective in our advertising to, to speak directly to that population. And we're actually hiring right now for technicians. And if you go to planetsuber.com and, and I link there from my website too, jeffmoral.com, you can see the actual ads that we're running that, that invite women in particular to consider this career path. And we describe the success we've had with other women and we give, you know, we rattle off the figures of the, of the current number of women we have serving, which is five women in our, in our shop and uh, 29 women dealership wide in every department uh, parts. Um, we have people, we have, um, you know, sales, sales, women, um, women managers in most of the departments. And so I guess the point I'm, the big point I'm trying to make here is that we were able to accomplish something that was very important to us as people, which is to, to create additional opportunity for, for people in society that traditionally have not had the same access to it. And also we have a stronger workforce. So we have better people, which make us more money. Yeah, I like that. I mean, that's, you know, that's thinking differently, right? And that's, that's kind of seeing a need, filling a need. That's all part of what businesses do. And I like that you actually created this because 1% is not a lot, like you said. So you know, over 50 states, <laughs> that's, that's uh, you know, like you said, that'd be, you, you'd be, you'd be hard pressed to find, find many, but that's, yeah. that's pretty awesome that you created the system and the training program and everything else The invite. I mean, that's a pretty, it's a sizable undertaking. I mean, just from the, the the overall scope of what it is, I know it probably wasn't a big outlay. Like you said, it was, wasn't hard enough to, you know, incentivize someone to be a trainer, get a good trainer. And then, but you know, th then, then start the process, you know, and get that going. So I think that's, uh, that's pretty awesome. Yeah, I think that for other, you know, I'm, I'm speaking, you know, from this uh, perch in the, in the automotive business, but I, we were in a unique position to solve this particular problem or, you know, not, I'm not saying solve it, but, but address it and, and improve the situation in our community. But there, there are other problems that we can't touch at all. Like there's, we're not in a position as a retail automotive dealership to really have a direct impact on, let's say homelessness or something, but there might be other businesses that could, I mean, you could imagine, um, I'm just thinking of a hotel, for instance, that could, if it had extra capacity, you know, if it was routinely under capacity, that it could use rooms from time to time to make available to people who are going through through tough times. And I'm not saying they should, or maybe that's not even a good idea, but I'm just trying to give an example that, that in every industry, we have certain superpowers that we're in, the, in a good position to deploy to serve the world and, and um, and oftentimes those things can be made to be, uh, to enhance the reputation of the dealership or to attract new customers who wouldn't have otherwise considered it or, or all sorts of other, other benefits that, that you can accrue by doing the right thing. 
You know, it's yeah, it's interesting here. And in, uh, I live in Beloit, Wisconsin, and it's the national headquarters for ABC Supply Company, big roofing supply company. Diane Hendricks is the, you know, the CEO, the owner. Her husband had started back in the 80s. She runs the whole thing. Now, multiple companies, I mean, just massive, you know, she's billions and all that. But she started a thing called Career Tech. Uh, right here in Beloit. And what that is, is it introduces kids from grade school into the high school to the trades and service industry. You know, they get to take these free classes. They get hands-on carpentry work, electrical work, HVAC. My kids have done them all. They're welding. You know, so my kids are 12, 13, 14, and they get to do these hands-on. They really, they teach them about each industry and how you can profit and how you can work in it. And you can, this can be a career. It's really amazing. I mean, they did a, what on coding for computers, my two of my sons are, you know, they're young, but they're really good at it. They end up being so good in that class. They help teach the entire class that day. Then they start one my one son started interning with Rakuten, right? Because with the kid who taught the class worked for them. And then all of a sudden he's interning with them and he's 13 years old, you know? So he's get they got this insight able to do this stuff because these guys are just about empowering the kids, giving them a career path, you know, other than just well, go to school, go to college. They're like, well, here's a hands-on trade. Here's how much you can make. And here's, you know, really getting that great exposure. Architecture stuff is really fascinating. So, and this is a woman who gives back in a very large scale. She does a lot of this kind of stuff like you're talking about. She does a lot of this work and really, you know, is kind of transforming our entire community, you know, with her she had a 30 year plan and she understands all this stuff and it's fascinating. It's right in line with what you're talking about. And to see them give opportunity to someone who aren't even thinking that way. Oh, HVAC, I never thought of that. And all of a sudden they're bending sheet metal and they're tacking welding. They're like, I really like this. And then they get out and they can grow into a job. They're making 80, 90,000 a year, start a business. It gives them a lot of opportunity, you know? So that's the kind of effect that I see like what you're doing you know, some of you don't even realize there are the unintended consequences in a good way, you know, that you start this stuff to help a little bit and it grows into quite a, quite an outreach and it's pretty amazing. So I, I really appreciate what you're doing. Yeah, thank you. I, I think it's important to, as a, as a person, you know, you don't want to get to the end of your life. I mean, if you're introspective, reflective at all you don't want to get to the end of your life and look back and say, all you did was make a paycheck or pile up a bunch of money. If you left this big wake of destruction <laughs> along the way, you know, it's one of the, one of the toxic things I see is the the way that private equity in our economy, you know, will buy companies and, and uh, break them apart and load them up with debt and walk away with their paychecks. And, and so that that the families who own, you know, those very wealthy families who have ownership stake in those private equity firms, they do well. But then they end up they can wipe out entire communities with that kind of behavior. And and I I just can't imagine what that reckoning is like for the people who actually think about it, who get to the end of their lives and say, Is that, you know, so I got to drive a fancy car and live in a big house and and yet my legacy is that I, you know, just Blew, blew whole communities apart. And, and my point is that not all of us, you know, I, I don't, um, I don't expect everyone to be philanthropic. I mean, there's only so much, so much money that people have, even, even people that are well off that they can get. But if you can find a way to, to create the good in society while your company is just doing its business anyway, that's the that's the part that I'm really excited about. The ideas that I'm really excited about sharing in the book. 
Yeah, and that's that's important to understand. You know, it's everyone, everyone. I, I like the you know I like the word legacy, right? To create that, it's kind of what I went through as I was building my first business. I was killing it, doing really well. Then 08, 09 hit. You know, I had done a lot of things wrong or ignored things that caused me to have a complete collapse on my business and everything else. But my big epiphany was understanding that my six little kids didn't care about my business. They didn't care what kind of vehicle I drove. They didn't care how many awards I won. None of that mattered to them. All that mattered was I was there, right? Being home, being with them, teaching them, spending time with them. So that was my big epiphany. Like, wow, I, I have just been chasing the dollar. I have been chasing success, you know, like in, in the admiration of others for my business. And that was my big, my big turnaround. For me, I changed everything, right? Started a new business, started to understand what I did wrong. And so I created the book. But like you're saying, I started looking generationally. I always tell people, if I would have stayed on that course, let's say things didn't crash. And I just kept, everything to me was business. It was all number one. It was my identity. It was everything. All my children would know, no matter what I would tell them, I showed them that business comes first. You know, I would literally ruin, I would create dysfunction for who knows how many generations, because that's all my kids would know. And that's what they would carry on to their kids. Again, not in a malice way, but just through example and living and putting that over what was right, you know, and not balancing out the time and not giving them what they really needed was the attention of their father and, you know, family togetherness and the whole of, you know, teaching and everything else. So it was a very unique time for me. And it's kind of in line with what you're talking about, you know, and you can do both. You, you can do both. That's what, that's why I love, about your book, and what you're talking about, you can. And again, you don't have to have, you know, you don't have to, you know, build a hundred new libraries or whatever. You know what I mean? You can, you can do small things in the community. You can work with one person. I talk in my book about just that. Mentor someone, reach down, just grab one person and help them. You know, someone who's maybe into business, you can help them. Or just, you know, take a kid, maybe they're missing a father. You know, fatherlessness is a big deal. But you have time. You create a margin because you've got a business where you now have some time, right? That's about getting away from the owner prison. And now go reach down and help the next guy and help them not go through what you had to go through, you know, and help them get on the path. That's the same thing you're talking about. You know, it's just, you have to keep it in perspective and understand there's a lot of ways to reach and affect others through the power of your business. Yeah. Was there an inflection point for you? Like, was there, was it a, a moment or a, a period in your life? It sounds like it might've been associated with the recession where you kind of came out of that ether that so many of us come out of, you know, that sort of like, like nose to the grindstone, shoulder to the wheel, absolute obsession with work at, at the expense of, of so many things. And then something happens that, that, you open up your eyes or you raise your gaze to, to take in, you know, additional information and you realize, wow, I've, I've been optimizing, I thought for, for perhaps the success of the business, but I didn't consider these other variables in my life, whether it was servicing the community or spending time with kids or, or trying to, to invest in the marriage so that I can, I can keep the first wife instead of, you know, losing right. her and having to find another one or whatever was it. So do, do you remember, was there a moment? Oh, there was a moment. Yeah. It's, it's epiphany moment, an epiphany right then, like in waking up one morning and all, everything you just talked about hit me in the morning. I started really, why am I doing this? This means nothing. You know, my kids would run crying down the driveway as I left the driveway because I'm leaving. 
Yeah. You know what I mean? I still get choked up about that. You know, I'm like, yeah. I mean, just scream around. You're like, what, what am I doing? You know, and I wouldn't come home till dark. I'd be gone for 14, 15 hours, you know, come in, say goodnight, and they go to bed. You know what I mean? And it was like, and the whole thing, all that you talked about, I mean, I woke up, I walked in my office. I had built an office. I had a big piece of property. I, I walked in the office. I had built my shop in the back. And I told my office manager, I said, well, we're done. I said, well, what are you talking about? I go, it's over. I said, you know, with the economy, 08 was happening. This was just going in 09. I'm like, we're, we're not going to make it. I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to do this anymore. And I went to my yard and I told all my guys, we're at the construction yard. I'm like, this is it, man. We're wrapping it up. And they're all, and they've been with me for 10 years. I had the same crew for over 10 years. You know, I said, I just I can't do this anymore. You know, just, I, I can't, you know, this was struggling. There's a lot of other little things that caused this, but yeah. it was more than the money. It was all the stuff you just talked about. And I'm like, I'm not going to raise my family this way. You know, I can't do this to them. I have six kids, a beautiful wife. There's no way I'm going to do this to them. You know, my father worked day in and day out. I mean, they, he gave me a great work ethic. I mean, I love him for it. So no matter what, I'll never be hungry because I can work. Right. But I, but I, but there's a lot of downside to that too, never being around. And I'm like, I can't do that. I just can't do that to my family. There's a way to do this. I'll figure it out. I didn't know how I was going to do it, but I had to figure out how can I do both? How can I regain a foothold in business, but do it right? How can I do it correctly? You know, and not be yeah. the obsession, not be my identity and change all that. There's something to be said, I think, for the seasons of a career too. And in in my case, I got started pretty young and the my wife and I communicate pretty well on this topic and and her willingness to to move up with me to to Massachusetts to buy the business was based on an agreement that that we were gonna put in some years of really hard work and that and she came in accepting that that there were gonna be cold dinners, actually a lot of cold dinners and that I, I wouldn't be around on weekends and I was going to work a lot. I mean, whatever we, we worked that out, but, but we had an agreement that that there, that was the spring of our lives. We weren't going to, we weren't going to make that a permanent lifestyle. And to the extent that, that you can be intentional about sprints in your life, I think that can work. You know, what you're describing 14 hour days. I mean, I don't, there are very few businesses that you can start, even the ones that, that are, are, like bottling lightning, like Facebook, you know, that are just, you know, absolute phenomena of businesses, phenomena, an absolute phenomenon, whatever my, my singular plural there is there. But even those, I mean, you have to know that Mark Zuckerberg was putting in incredible hours during the time that business was growing so rapidly. And, and so that's just the way it is. If you're going to build a business, it's going to take a while. But I think the mistake that a lot of businesses, a lot of business owners make is that they don't, they don't notice that the season has changed. You know, they, their businesses are doing well, for instance, and they're still putting in the time or they're doing well and they're not grooming the successor so that that successor is ready to take over operationally, um, you know, when, when approach, when the time is appropriate. So there are all sorts of things that, that people can be doing if they're paying attention, but, but a lot don't. Yeah, that's it. That's exactly it. A lot of them don't. And a lot of them don't know, you know I mean? Cause they, they don't understand. They've never set, like you said, they're not planning seasons. They're not setting goals. I, t I call it the exit strategy, right? I tell them to start with the exit strategy. 
you know, put a date, put a number on it, whatever it is. Obviously, you can change that as you go along. I mean, you're eight years in of a 10-year thing and you feel great and you want to keep going. No one's stopping you. But if you build it that way with real intentionality on your specific goals and numbers and targets, that's going to give you the clarity to build a business. And then, then you can see those seasons. You know, they can say, okay, after about three years, yeah, I'm going to put in the 14 hours a day. I'm going to build this. I'm going to get this. But I understand the delegate. I get, I get the operators in place right? I outsource what I can. I delegate. I start to look at how can I grow the business? How can I gain more market share, which then gives more income, more profit so that I can give more people responsibility and grow a true business and not a one-man, four-man operation. Uh, so you're right on the money, but they've got to be very intentional with this. And I love that you communicate with your wife that way. In my academy, I talk about each level as we get ready to scale, you know, zero to a million, million to, you know, five million. I like, right at the end of all the stuff you do, it's like, okay, now you got to sit down with the family. You got to share this. You got to let them, it doesn't mean they're going to work for you or any of that, but they have to know what's ahead. And if you know the, the humps and bumps that are coming, the time is going to be required to get to this next level. If they understand, they can be a cheerleader for you. Right. Because if you don't share it and just say it's business, they don't care. Guess who's going to be miserable? They're not going to understand what you're really doing. And in their mind, strange, strange things will strange things will start to be conjured. And who knows where that can go. Right. And they're not able to support you because they don't understand. They don't know what it is. And they have to be in, agree, in agreement. Some people don't can't go to the next level because they're not willing to make the commitment. If they understand and say, well, oh, I can't do that. My kids are only, you know, this age. And I, okay, well, then you can't do that now or maybe later. Or you find a way to make it happen and not sacrifice those those really precious years, you you know, that are the most influential with your children. So um, I, I think it's kind of right on the money with that. You know, it's, it's very important to understand that the plan, the exit strategy, understand where your business is really going is so critical in development of it. And that whether you're starting or you've been in five years or 10 years, you still should have something like that in place so you can handle it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in terms of, of how time is spent too, I, I think there's a very short period of time where it makes sense to work really long hours. And I think one of the mistakes I made, and it's one of the reasons why I burnt out and, and had to become a refugee of my own companies and, and flee to another state was that I put in too many hours too long and what I should have done, if I could go back and do it over again, I, I would have realized something that I only realized much later, which was you do the most important work in the first few hours of your day. And if you're putting in a 14-hour day, you know, six weeks after starting up your company, well, that kind of makes sense. If you're still doing it two years later or four years later, that to me reflects an inability to set up a system that can take care of those lower value added tasks that you really don't have to do. You know, I, I remember um, we had a couple of presidents recently, George W. Bush and, and Barack Obama, both of whom had a pretty rigorous workout schedule. So they had, had arguably the hardest job in the world, obvious, um, arguably the most demanding job in the world. But they found time to, to, for physical fitness, and, and they carved out an opportunity to, to take care of their bodies. And if they can do that with the, the toughest job in the world, then, then tell me if you know a, a new business owner 
uh, can't, can't figure out a way soon enough to, to do that same kind of thing. And whether it's fitness or whether it's spending time with your kids or all the things you need to do to, to honor your responsibilities to the people who depend on you. Yeah, very, very true. I know also with uh, George W. Bush, him and Carl Rove had a book reading contest for a year. He read 110 books in the year. Okay, that's while he was president. While he was president, yeah, 110 right. books wow. he read. Okay, he's talking okay. the busiest guy in the world. I always share the story too. Uh, General Petraeus was at a business club I belonged to in Chicago one time. He was visiting, he was speaking and hanging out there. So he's in there working out. He comes up to the fitness. We had three floors of fitness center, and my buddy ran the front desk and everything there in the in the health part in the health club. And uh, so I'm chatting because, oh, Petraeus is down there on the bike. I, go, I see him. He's got this binder and he's pedaling like a madman with sweat dripping. He's flipping through these pages. And then my buddy tells us, look at his itinerary. And I looked at it for the day. I mean, every minute, 20 minutes of personal time, this, every minute was taken up. Every, I'm like, you talk about busy people. And yet he's down there working out. You know, that's part of the deal. He worked it in. So you get these high performers, super busy guys, like you said, it's it's a priority, right? It, it There's a lot more time than people think, you know, in yeah, their the, day. The, the key to that, I think, is that that word that keeps we keep bringing up over and over and over again is and that's intention. It's like making the decision that these things are going to be important. And then when once you've made that decision, then you figure out a way to get it done. You know, if you have an agreement with your wife that, uh, or with your husband or partner, spouse, whoever it is that, that you're going to be home, you know, every night, no later than seven. Well, you're going to, I mean, if that's the way it is, if that's the agreement you make, you can figure out a way to do that. And it's, it's all about deciding that it's, it's enough of a priority that you're going to, you're going to make the commitment and then figure out how to get it done. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, that's just truth. That's just straight up truth. The other thing you said a little bit earlier about the those morning hours, you know, that's kind of my magic time. I get up at 4.30 every morning. That's how I function. I always have. I get so much done by 8 o'clock. It's unbelievable. Um, and I think people need to take that to heart to understand that, you know, you're strongest when you're fresh. You know, I mean, you're, you're great at the beginning of the workout, but at the end, you pretty much are taxed, right? You're done. So that 12, 14, 16 hour day, you really not being productive at the end. You're either, you're either hiding, okay, from other responsibilities, whether that's home or, you know, everyone's got their issues, okay? So some people really aren't busy. They just don't want to be somewhere else. So they, so they bury themselves in their business. But other people, they haven't managed the time correctly. They haven't understood the task. Or like Mark Twain said, you know, eat that frog, right? Do the hardest thing first. You know, yeah, you got to swallow right. a frog, do that thing first. Just get it done out of the way. That's what I do. I try to teach my kids, do the hard stuff now. Then you have the whole day. We homeschool them. I'm like, you got the best of all worlds here. You know, you get to be home. You really only get about three hours of school a day. You know, anything you got chores, you got other things, just get it done. You know, just get it done now. And then you have the whole rest of the day. You can think about going to gymnastics. You can go run. You can work out. We got, you know, you can play your games. You can do that stuff. But you start to build up, trying to build those habits early in them of the, you know, doing it now. No procrastination. Procrastination leads to poverty. You know, don't procrastinate. Just knock it out, and then you'll you'll be at peace. You'll have a much better time during the day, knowing that that stuff is done. Yeah, so I actually talk about that. You know, how to make the the best use of your time in the book, and that's that's one of uh, you know one of the suggestions that that I have is very important. 
That's awesome. What else in the book are you going to? Because you're too, you know, profit wise, they get it. So you want to, it is a focus in the book, kind of share with us, is it about increasing profit or is it just using your profit wisely? So kind of give me the, give, give us the, you know, the premise behind it. Yeah, the, the premise, I guess the big theory of the book is that people think that there's uh, competition between generating profits and also doing pro-social things or creating good. In other words, there's a, a misunderstanding that somehow if you're going to make the most amount of money possible, the way you do that is by stepping on people um, or disregarding your responsibilities or cheating on your taxes or or um, breaking up companies and wiping out communities. <laughs> you know, it's there's in in the the theory is the the premise of the book is that th that's that's not the way it is at all. And uh, I give lots of examples and lots of specific techniques how how you can sew the two of those things together. When I say sew, like like weave profits and pro social activities together. So, um, you know, maybe I'm trying to think where, what a good example of that would be. Um, and there's so many, here's, here's an example. I think a lot of companies are tempted when they're interviewing, like, let's say they need a salesperson and they know that the salesperson might be a little sketchy or shady, but her numbers uh, are really good. You know, perhaps the person is uh, trying to join their company after leaving another and they're like, wow, this person can really sell. But, but then you do the reference calls or, or you detect even through your own interview process that, that the person is one of those so-called brilliant jerks, you know, that, that she generates good numbers, but antagonizes everybody in your company. And so I think the conventional temptation is like, well, how are we going to decide here? Do we, or we have a great salesperson, but she's going to screw up our culture. And, and a lot of companies would take her on. And my point is that if you're patient, you can grow your own great salespeople, or you can be patient and find the great salesperson without the, um, the costs of, of bringing in someone that's going to screw up your culture. Yeah, that is so on point. I mean, it's it it should be an easy decision. No, okay, you're not you're not gonna. I'm not I'm not, I'm not I'm not putting a little bit of cancer in the tip of my finger. Okay, I'm not doing that because it can yeah. affect my whole body. You know, you got to cut it off right now or not let it in. And it's an important thing. And like you said, people need to. I think in in company growth, people need to understand. You know, you you grow slow, you 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 fall slow, right? You grow fast, you can fall fast. You know that fast growth. You tend to make those um, those exceptions for those kind of people because hey, they can really generate some numbers. I need that. I need that capital. Let's let's make some sales. Let's make ourselves known. And and you you start to compromise on your integrity uh, to to get to those numbers. Oh, maybe we'll get rid of them later. But you don't. They they end up destroying the entire culture. And it's a it's a big theme. Um, not a theme. It's let's use. I'm going to say a buzzword. Company culture. It's become a buzzword. Right. But it doesn't change the fact that it's critical to a really well-run company. That's how you attract the great talent is they have the good company culture. 
you know, something that people are drawn to. And it's not because they make a lot of money. They can make a lot of money, but the, they're not drawn there because people are looking for a place to be that's more than a paycheck. You know, and one person, like you just said, that one bad, that arrogant, toxic salesperson or admin, whatever, whoever they might be in the company can really, can really change the course of your company culture. So it's important to understand that. Oh, sure. Yeah. And I, and I talk about uh, the importance of, of making the slow buck as opposed to the quick buck. And I'll be perfectly candid with you. There is nothing in, in my book and really nothing in my experience that would be useful to someone who's look, interested in making a quick buck. I just don't know how to do it because what we did is what you're describing. It's like the forest comes in slowly, but it takes a long time to chop it down too, because it's, it's so strong and robust. And we've done the same thing. One of the principles we have with respect to hiring and how it impacts culture, because there's so many, so many nuances to building a healthy culture and so many ways you need to go about doing it. But one of the ways we do it is, is we realized that if we bring people in at an entry level and grow them ourselves, then when we have an opportunity to, uh, when we need a manager or a senior person, we have people from our own company to choose from. And that's, that's the ideal situation that you want to work really hard to create. Because when you choose from your own people, you already know exactly how they function in different cir cir circumstances. You're not relying on a, on a few hours of interviewing to detect problems. You've actually had a chance you know, over a period of years to observe how they respond to different challenges. And, and not only that, but, but that person has been steeped in the company values. So it's that much less likely that your own person, once they get into a senior position, is going to start making really bad decisions that have a lot of negative impacts because of, of all the power they have at that senior level. Yeah, that's a very good point. And it's, you know, and again, it's, it's perfect world. We'd all like, you know, but there's, there's times when depending on how the company is growing, you might need a different skill set that hasn't even been built in your company. Um, and we all get that, but ideally I'm with you. If you can hire from within and, um, I've had some other guests on talking about this too, but you've got to build a training program inside your company. You've got to actually train these people for those next positions. You can't just, hey, you've been here for three years. Why don't you assume this role? You know, they have to be qualified, not, not just qualified, but they have to be trained to perform well in it, right? Because no one wants to take a step up where they're then, you know, baptism by fire, they're thrown into this giant hot mess and, you know, they, they fail because there's no support. You know, so there's a lot going on. That's why I like the building slow aspect gives you the ability to create those processes and those systems and the ability for people to see that there's an actual path to advancement in the company. You know, that's rewarded on merit or however you do it, but it's really important to have all that stuff and focus on, on making that um, the culture. You know, that's what escape the owner prison is. That's the, part of your 5%, as I talk about. You need to focus on that. How do you put those things in place? You know, if you're running, doing the day to day and making sales and making installs and, you know, getting underneath, if you can get underneath, you know, changing some oil and doing, if you're doing everything in the place, you're not going to have time to create a culture. All you're going to have is chaos all the time. So it's important to understand where that's got to go. It really, really goes back to that. Yeah. And I think that creating a healthy culture, as I alluded to earlier, is there are a lot of parts to it. I like to think of a, you know, a healthy culture as a wall with call it a thousand bricks in it. 
And, and each one of those bricks represents doing something well in your company. And I'll give you an example of that, you know, when you, when you onboard a new hire, do you have that week or two of training in place to get that person geared up or do you just drop them, you know, feed them to the wolves right away with a stack of brochures and good luck kid. You know, the, the difference between those two things, you know, is it the difference between success and failure in a company? No, it's, it's one brick. I mean, there are companies that have, you know, very poor onboarding procedures that still do pretty well. But if, if you don't do that well and you don't do all the other things well, you don't, you don't hire people very well, you don't have good systems, you, know, you, start, you start pulling bricks, there's, there's no wall left. I mean, it, it, you have a total dysfunction of a company. So, so it's so important, you know, related to the, the 5% is, is how do you, you know, focus on your energy on those things that create a company that that is sustainable and is a place where people want to work and can succeed instead of doing those things. It's so, so common, you know, entrepreneurs are such hands-on people. And often, you know, you think about the, I'll just say the, um, you know, the plumber who starts his own plumbing company, you know, he, he might be really good at plumbing. And so it's, it's one of the hardest things in the world not to go out on a job and do the plumbing. Because he's he's so good at it, he enjoys it. He and um, but for every every moment he spends turning a wrench under someone's sink, that's a moment he's not you know devoting his energy to that training program that we're talking about, or to thinking about the choices he's making with respect to his family and how he allots his time, and all those those other things. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. And people, they, you know, and that's, I deal with that all the time, right? Because I'm with, I, that's my focus is the trades and service industry. And, and it's hard. And it's, and I know I was the same way. I, ha, I had to be in the hole. You know, I'm an artist. You know, I had to have my hands on it. You know, I got to make it good. And until I discovered that these guys have been working with me for years and been watching everything I do, could do it pretty much as good as I could. They, they could do it so well, the homeowner didn't know the difference. Let's put it that way. Okay. And that's all that mattered. And like when they when the homeowner walked out and they had done the whole thing and they said, it's amazing. I've never seen anything so beautiful. I was free. That was one of those, another one, another one of those moments, Jeff, where I'm like, I'm free. I don't have to do this. They don't need me here. You know, they need me 20 minutes in the morning to tell them where it's supposed to go. And I'm out. You know, I just opened up the next 10 hours of my day. So, uh, it, but it's, it is hard to get people to accept that. But when, you, when you're able to show them the bigger picture and what they're able to do, and it's really about showing them what they're going to be able to do for the people that work for them, you know, you're going to have time to create benefit plans and uh, make appreciation parties and training for them to make them better. You're going to go out getting them more work. They're never going to have, you know, a two-week layoff you know, because you're a seasonal business or two months, you're able to find ways to keep generating income and work for these guys. So they're busy all the time. You know, that goes a lot further than you getting down and, you know, turning a wrench with them or digging a hole. Yeah, this is a ceiling. It, it's very, very common. And I see it all the time with tradespeople and blue collar professions, um, blue collar businesses. And, and we're, we're in, you know, we're in a blue collar business in the automotive world, in many respects, particularly the service side, but entrepreneurs have a hard time breaking through that, that ceiling where they give up the actual on the job contact. 
I can't tell you how many people that that we call at the dealership to, to help us, whether it's, um, you know, HVAC companies or plumbing companies or electricians or whatever it is. And, and the entrepreneur is, is older and getting tired and not as efficient or as effective as, as he or she used to be, but is still like showing up on the job and they're just stuck. They never figure out a way to back away from the actual, you know, implementation of the service to focus on these other things, to grow the business and to, to, to escape the owner's prison, essentially. It's, it's just a very, very common thing that business owners can't figure out. Yeah, it's it and it, you know, and that's that's what I saw, right? I was a victim of it, like I caught it earlier, but you know, that's one of my big goals helping these people see this, just like you're doing. I think your book and um, you know, your example of what you created in your businesses uh is is another great example of ETOP, right? It's about escaping the owner prison, you know, understanding there's such bigger purpose than the day-to-day and you need to embrace that and know that that's okay. You know, a lot of guys, I always tell guys, you don't have to be a tough guy and still carry shingles up the ladder to the rough. You're the owner. You got people for that, you know, because they think, you know, they're showing the guys they can still do it. Well, I get it, but as I always say, when you take a header off the rough, and you're in the hospital for three months and you don't get any work and your guys guess where they're going down the street to the competitor and working for them because they got to eat, you know, but you're being a tough guy. You don't need that. You know what they want? They want you out selling jobs. They want to make sure the company runs well. So they have work continuously. That's what they want. That's what impresses them. Not whether you can carry bundles up a ladder, you know, so you got to kind of drop the ego and just, you know, let's focus on what really matters and that's taking care of your people, right. Yeah, and those around you. Entrepreneurs, by by uh, by nature can can solve problems and get things done. I think what's missing for those so many of those people in in my observation and I'd be interested in your perspective too, is just again that 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 intention that that they haven't had that epiphany moment where they say, this just doesn't work for me anymore. I'm not I'm not going to keep doing this. This is a problem I can solve and as an entrepreneur, that's what I do well and solve problems because they can, they, they have uh, the entrepreneurs. I mean, are plenty intelligent, plenty hardworking. They just have what the, the missing ingredient is. They haven't, they haven't made that decision to actually change and grow with their business and the times. Yeah, I think you're right on that. Another thing to add to that is the circle they run in. Okay. Again, your, your contractors, your, you're tough, you're working, you put in the time, you got the, you got the three layers of calluses, you know what I mean? On your hands and stuff. And so does everybody else. And they, you know, and they, in a, in a good way, like when we work out, we'll talk a little smack to each other, stuff like that, but they get kind of consumed in that and they can't pull away from that because maybe they're growing up early in the career. Someone's making fun because oh, look at that guy. Yeah. Look, he's driving a Beamer. You know, he drove a Beamer out here to get in the combine to, you know, pick the corn. I'm like, well, what's wrong with that? Oh, that guy is smart. He works, you know, six weeks a year. He plants for three weeks. He harvests for three. Someone else takes care of it in there. I, I think that's a pretty good plan. Okay. Whatever he's doing is working. What are you driving? You know what I mean? So it's kind of, but they get stuck in that, that somewhat macho ego kind of thing. And they don't have each other lifting them up. That's why if you take that, like the construction industry, the people I'm able to reach are really only the top 20%. 
you know, maybe 30 if you're lucky. People who understand there's a better way to do stuff. Everyone else is, they're still getting week to week. They're just a glorified employee, but they're not out of, they're not, they don't have a circle of influence to help elevate them out of that and show them a better way for their life. Um, I mean, they had the, the, the AmeriQuote and the freedom of owning their own business, but they're actually more enslaved than their employees, you know, and it's a shame they don't see it, you know, so that's, that's all I can add to that really. And it's just a pretty common, it's a pretty common thing, as you said. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, Jeff, this has been an awesome time. I really, I really appreciate your insight into all this. I think we're very, um, we're very aligned on our thoughts on this. I think you take it to a kind of another level, which I can really appreciate. I love the, your, I love your focus. I love the profit wise focus. I love, you know, doing more, giving back, being responsible. You know, the responsibility aspect is a big thing um, that I think you drive home here and that it can be done in so many different ways. You know, it's not the biggest, you want to be the biggest, you know, philanthropist on the planet. You can be the smallest, you can help one person, you can help a community, you can help your, your own team members, your own employees, you can help them too. That's another form of it. There's so many great forms of it. When you understand that that's part of your purpose, you know, it, it's a beautiful thing. It really is. I think it'll make your business, I think it'll make you love your business more. I think it'll make it more enjoyable. You'll you'll have a new a renewed sense of purpose, also to understand what what your business is able to do going forward for others. So I I really I really appreciate the time you've given us today. Yeah, thank you. It's been my pleasure. Yeah, it has been great. So uh, we'll keep in touch. And I, you got another book in the works? You're gonna you're gonna write some more? What's the plan? You know, what one one will probably do it. Um, I have my website, jeffmoral.com. I I've been using that as the, the outlet for additional things. And, and the, the beauty of that is that you don't have to, you know, you don't have to have readers pay anything for that. You know, in the case of the books, the publisher who, um, who rolled the dice on a first time author, he needs to sell the books to, to pay his bills. But, but at jeffmoral.com, I have a lot of additional writing, um, bonus chapters that didn't, that didn't fit in the book on starting a business for, for people, for among your audience who, who are thinking about starting a business rather than already owning one. And, and there are also a lot of the, the, um, the worksheets and, and templates and, and scripts that we use in our own businesses there. So in the case of like our hiring questions, we, we use a script for our, um, you know, our interviews and, and, people can see the exact same stuff that we use if they want to get an idea of the, the way that we run our business in this unusual way. Oh, that's awesome. I'll put that in the show notes, uh, the jeffmoral.com. So people can click on that and uh, check that stuff out. That'd be great. And if you have anything else, of course, you can give it to me or share it with us. Uh, happy to support your efforts here. I, I love what you're doing. I wish you continued success in everything that's happening with your businesses and the profit wise with the book and the whole philosophy and sharing the message. I hope you continue to do it because I think it's really important that people should, should start, you know, seeing that, seeing their business as more than a, a, a capital generator, right? It's important. It's, it's really, really important. So thanks again for that. So we'll, we'll get back in touch and swing back around and see what else you've come up with in the, in the future here. All right. Very good. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for listening to the E-Top Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, and if you liked what you've heard, please leave a great review for us. Your subscription and review helps us reach more people so we can show them how to escape the owner prison. 
Also, check out the links in the show notes about today's guests and more ways to connect with ETOP on social media. Stay strong and keep moving forward with your business.